So if you remember from the last week's, uh, last week's passage, is that this is the week of Passover. So the setting is in Jerusalem. There are huge crowds. They, come, they came to the city to celebrate this, one of the great festivals uh, in their day. And part of it in the passage before is, uh, the main part of it is Jesus enters into the city on a donkey. And he's saying something through what he does. His action gives a message to everybody. And this is the message. I am that Messiah King, Jesus is saying, coming into Jerusalem because just like Zechariah the prophet prophesied some 500 plus years before that your king is coming, that's me, is what Jesus is saying. I'm coming in. So there's a great crowd. There's a great energy. There are people who receive him. They, they call out, Hosanna, God save us now. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So they're declaring him king. John, who wrote this gospel about that passage before, gives us three different perspectives on it. It starts with the disciples. And in a, in a word, they're clueless. They don't get it. They're not going to get it until he's glorified. This is a word that shows up again in this passage. Jesus is going to be glorified. But the light doesn't come on for the, pass or for the disciples until after that. The second group is the crowd. And uh, they are passionate but misguided. They call Jesus king. They want him to save them immediately. But they mean something less than his mission. They want salvation, but they want a lesser salvation. They want deliverance, but they want a lesser deliverance. So they're passionate but misguided. So you have the, the disciples, the crowds, and then finally the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they're kind of viewed as looking at uh, Jesus' triumphal entry as he comes into the city from the outside. They're his opponents. And they're beside themselves. They want Jesus gone. So they've been plotting to kill him, um, but he only seems to be growing in popularity. And then we come to this passage, and it's important to realize that it's it's basically the same setting, except that Jesus is already in Jerusalem. And John introduces us to a fourth group. So you go disciples, crowd, Pharisees, and then here are these groups, or here's this group called the Greeks. And not, not fraternities, you know, uh, they're not pledging anything. There's a technical name there that we'll get to. But if you look at the passage overall, there are these two key things that you can look at. Number one, is, oh, it's the, the Greeks, whoever they are, they're present. And then the second phrase would be the hour for his glorification. Those two things, there's a connection between those two. So let's just start and let's walk through the passage and see what's occurring right after Jesus makes his triumphal entry. He's right into the city of Jerusalem. Um, and it says, look at verses 20 and 21 with me. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks so these, those Greeks, came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And first thing, again, he reinforces the idea, hey, we're at the feast. That's what we're reading about, meaning the Passover. It's in Jerusalem, the crowds are huge, there's big buzz about the city. And uh, he introduces to us this fourth group of people, um, the Greeks. Now, this is a word that was broadly applied. It did not mean, in this context, somebody who was ethnically Greek. Hellenistic culture, the impact of uh, Hellenistic culture was that a lot of people spoke Greek. So what he means by this is somebody who's not a Jew, they're a Gentile, but their common language is rather than being ethnically Greek, they speak Greek. Greek-speaking, non-Jew. 
That's who he's talking about. So these people here are at a Jewish festival. They're not Jewish. And uh, they have a connection somehow. And so he tells us, John tells us two things about them. Okay, who are these Greeks, these kind of outsiders? They're not Jewish, and yet they're here anyway for this great Jewish uh, festival of Passover. He tells us two things. Number one, um, they're there to worship. They went up, it says uh, in verse 20, among those who went up to worship were these Greeks. So they're not tourists. I mean, they, they could be um, um, proselytes, these uh, full-fledged converts to Judaism. That, that's a possibility. Or they could be like sort of friends and admirers of Judaism um, so that they could participate in the festivities and the gatherings, at least in the temple, um, to, the, to the realm of the court of the Gentiles so that they could observe and, and be there. But they're friendly. So whatever, but we do know that they're there to worship. And that they're there in proximity. And so what we can conclude from this is that they know something about God, and many of them at least are seeking to know God more. They're there to worship. The second thing that he tells us is that they want an audience with Jesus. They want, they want, to, they want to chat with him. Now, we're not told why. I keep using this word. I, sometimes I'll review my sermons, and I use this word buzz over and over and over again. There's this buzz about Jesus, meaning that he's a big topic of conversation. He generates a lot of interest. There's a lot of buzz about Jesus, but I don't think it's curiosity. I don't think it's just this interest in who is he and what's, what's all going on here that would drive them, given the feast and the crowds and the controversy. I don't think it's merely kind of seeking celebrity. I think you combine that these Greeks are there to worship, that they know something of God and they want to know Him more, combined with all of these Gentile-friendly statements that Jesus has been making. They're seeking, they, they believe that God is the one true God, the only God. And they're seeking Him, but I mean, there's clearly a division between Jewish people and Gentile people. You know, you've got a court that sort of relegates them to the outer part. And um, Jesus goes on record, like for example, early in the Gospel of John, he's talking to Nicodemus, who's a religious leader, and Jesus tells him this, God so loved the world, not just Jewish folks, but the whole world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life or eternal life. This goes beyond just like your turf and your mindset that God is going to do something through his son that's going to impact the entire world. Not just Jewish folks, but way beyond that. Or in John 10, verse 16, Jesus talks about himself and he refers to himself as the good shepherd. But he says, hey, listen, I have sheep who are not of this fold and I'm going to gather them all under one shepherd. Not just Jewish folks, but Gentiles. Um, John, the writer, comments on in chapter 11, verse 52, Caiaphas unwittingly makes this prophecy where he says, you, you know, you guys don't know anything. Don't you understand that it's God's purpose for one man to die for the nation? And John inserts this comment. Hey, listen, he prophesied that this is what Jesus would do, but not just for the nation, but also for all peoples to gather them. Or you could look in a different book. I'm, I, I realize I'm kind of belaboring the point, but I think you should get it that somebody who's a Gentile and they're looking in to see if God has something for them, they could go, is there room for me in the kingdom of God? So uh, one more, okay? In the Gospel of John, uh, in the last week of his life, Jesus cleanses the temple. 
And he demands this, he insists this about the temple, that the temple is supposed to be a, a place of prayer, a house of prayer for, get this, all nations. Not just one group of people, but everybody. Now, if you're kind of on the outside and you, you're seeking God and you want to be a part of the, the kingdom of God, you, have a, you want a stake in that. And here's this person who comes along and he's establishing himself through his signs and his teaching and all of that. And he's making all these very Gentile friendly, Gentile inviting statements that what God is doing through the Christ, He's doing for everybody, who could probably draw some interest. There's, it's not a curiosity. It's not, um, we're not perplexed that people outside of, um, outside of Jewish ethnicity would want to seek an audience uh, with Jesus. You can also contrast these guys with the Pharisees. You know, when it comes to how they see Jesus, the Pharisees are always exasperated. They're opposing, they're rejecting Jesus. They're plotting against him. And here on the other hand, these people who aren't even supposed to have an insider information or anything like that, they're inspired, they're curious, and they're seeking. And so they make this request through Philip, one of the disciples, they approach him and say, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Want an audience with Jesus. Now, why Philip? Why Philip? It's a question. We're not exactly sure why they would choose Philip over the other 11 guys or other people close to Jesus. Maybe it's some speculation uh, that John includes that he is from Bethsaida and is close to Decapolis, a Greek-speaking territory. So maybe it's even just somebody who knows him per uh, personally. Or uh, uh, Philip... Uh, is a Greek name. So is Andrew, by the way, who features in the next verse. Uh, it's a Greek name. They're Greeks. Uh, maybe they seek him out for that. And you might go, well, that's weird. Why would that be the case? Imagine this. Just imagine. I know most of you, this is not your frame of reference, but just imagine with me. It's a thought exercise, okay? Imagine you were from the South. Nay, not the South, the deep South. And so you add syllables to words and you drop letters from words. I mean, the whole nine. You're from the deep south, okay? That's who you are. And maybe the, your best friends, maybe your mom calls you Bubba, okay? And that's who you are, right? And so everything, if it's not fried, like you, you like your cornflakes fried, you know, whatever it is. You're from the deep, deep south. And you happen to be in New York City seeking the audience of someone who's a celebrity. Like you're in New York City, and you're there, and you want whoever this elite kind of center of the attention person is, you would like to talk to him. And he's got all these people around him who are close to him. And, you know, one's named like Zaire, and another's named Jim, and another's named Fred, and there's one guy named Billy Bob. Now, you're from the Deep South. Who is it that you're going to approach? Well, I mean, if you've got any sense at all, you're going to Billy Bob first, right? And saying, hey, can I talk to this guy? So anyway, Philip has a Greek name. Andrew has a Greek name and all of that. What's interesting about that is John includes this little detail, but why they pick Philip to ask is secondary in the text. It's the request that's primary. It's not who they ask, it's what they ask. Look at it. We want to see Jesus. That's who we want to chat with. And so in the next verse, look at, look at verse 22 with me. It says, Philip went and told Andrew... Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. It's like the disciples turn around and they tell Jesus. So some Greeks seek Jesus, and now the disciples tell Jesus. So they pass this request along. But it looks like early. Why does Philip tell Andrew? It's, it's almost implied, or you get the impression that 
Philip doesn't quite know what to do. And like, should we do this? And so he goes to his buddy Andrew and it's like, you know, should we do this? And you might ask to yourself, well, what's the big deal? Ah, but it was a big deal. It was a big deal. It was a, there's a big, especially festival time as, as far as how could you seek God. It, you might just say, well, they just want to see Jesus. Think about segregation back in the day when uh, people from the so-called white race and people from the so-called black race weren't uh, allowed or it was bad to intermingle their so-called races. A lot of hostility about that, a lot of debate and tension and even violence, a lot of pressure. The Apostle Paul would talk about the relationship between uh, Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, another name for them, and his main kind of uh, descriptive word is the word hostility. A lot of hostility between Jews and and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. As a matter of fact, it even shows up in the temple. Now they're worshiping in the temple. Paul seems to be referring to the court of Gentiles uh, as a barrier when he calls it the dividing wall of, quote, hostility. There is something that separates them that is a wall that separates them, but it's not just a wall to organize. It's a wall of hostility. And what Paul says when he comments on it is he goes on to say that Jesus is the one who broke this down to gather into himself, under himself, one people through his cross. Only Jesus could do that, but he did. So it was a big deal. Was it a big deal? Hey, we wish to see Jesus. We, we don't know. There are these people from that group. Is it okay if they do that? You know, maybe uh, Philip and Andrew talk about it and go like, well, I mean, let's just pass along the message. And so they do. So Jesus has been mentioning his glorification. And we said there's this, it's sort of a shorthand. Uh, that's his victory uh, through his death on the cross. His glorification is coming. His, that, that death on the cross is going to reveal who he really is and what he's really here to do and how he has accomplished it. That's his glorification, but it's going to look bad early. He's going to die. Um, so all of this that we see in the passage and in the rest of the passage uh, touches on his glorification. And the first part, in verse 23, let's look at that. It says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. The first thing that he talks about, this is his first response to Philip and Andrew, is the timing. Of his glorification. When is he going to die? When is all this stuff about him going to be revealed? Who he is, who he really is, and what the significance uh, of his being, his coming is. And he says here, it's the timing. Uh, you know, up to this point, when he talks about his glorification, it's always ahead. You know, people don't get it. He'll talk about his glorification, but it's always looking ahead. Like, for example, his mom at this wedding in John 2 says, hey, do the thing, you know, there's, they don't have any wine, so do whatever uh, you're going to do and fix this. And remember what he says to his mom? He says, my hour has not yet come. It's ahead. He talks to the woman at the well, and uh, he tells her when it comes to worship, she's from another race, another ethnicity. And he tells her, listen, the worship is all going to change. It doesn't matter whether you're worshiping from Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem or whatever. All of that's going to change. The hour is coming. And now is, right, when worship is going to be established by something else. You're going to worship God in spirit and truth, not a place. It's, a, it's ahead. In uh, chapter 7, in chapter 8, 
it says they wanted to arrest Jesus, but they couldn't. And you want to know why? Because his hour had not yet come. And it's not, it wasn't time for him to die. Now, these words hit like a jolt. They're a dividing line in John as far as this is concerned. Jesus hears this, and his immediate response to this is the hour has come. And from here on out, every time this phrase shows up, it's imminent. It's right here. So, for example, just track along with me. In verse 27, if you pop down, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But the purpose, the reason I came was for this time. Uh, look at uh, the first verse in chapter 13. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world. Um, and to, to go to the Father. 17.1, he talks about his hour coming again. The timing is now. My, the, the, the hour for the death of the Son of Man, the hour for the glorification of the Son of Man has come. It's right now. It's imminent. And from here on out, you see that. Now, here's an interesting little feature. What kicks all this off? Well, the, these Greeks approach and they want an audience with Jesus. It's sort of, uh, but, but what's interesting about it is they fade from the narrative from here. Now, later in the passage, deeper in the passage, there's something that sort of resurfaces about them, but it's not really recorded how Jesus responds to their request. Sure, invite them in, you know, would you like some water? Can I get you anything? There's none of that. There's, it, it just shifts. It's, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't answer them because, and here's the thing, that's not the point. The point is that these Greeks asking for an audience with Jesus acts like a signal or a trigger. And when he responds to that, he, it's like Jesus hears the request. These people outside of Judaism and the Jewish faith and that sort of thing, maybe they're friendly or maybe they're pursuing, maybe they're coming in that direction. When they approach, he goes, okay, it's now. I'm, I'm in Jerusalem and it's now. My death, my glorification is imminent. Now, the obvious question is to ask why. Why is it that he would hear this request seeking an audience uh, with him from these Greeks and go, okay, now's the time, and it's a trigger, it's a signal? Well, I think it's because of his mission to the world. His mission is to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Um, and Jesus can't bring the Gentiles in until he goes to the cross. That's his glorification. That's his revealing, the unveiling. So, so get this. I just want you to connect this, and then we'll move on. They wish to see Jesus, and Jesus realizes that they're not really going to see him until he's gone to the cross and done everything that needs to be done to accomplish the bringing of the Gentiles in, and then they'll see him. As a matter of fact, it's, it's not even until he does that that the disciples really see him, right? So that's the trigger. He does this and he goes, all right, now is the time to go to the cross to uh, accomplish the salvation of the world, uh, the unveiling of who I am and what I came to do. Now, the next thing that we see about his, uh, his glorification beyond the timing is the nature of it. Look at verse 24, see if this intrigues you a little bit. He goes on to say, truly, truly, I say to you, a lot of times that's an emphatic way of making a point, like you need to get this. Truly, truly, I say to you, he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
So, okay, you get it? Get it? So he's talking about a seed. He, what, what Jesus does is he gets that his glorification, if his glorification is his death, that's counterintuitive. Because everybody has this mindset that death is not a good thing. His enemies, what do his enemies think? Well, gosh, if we kill Jesus, death is going to be the end of Jesus. And then we'll win. And the disciples seem to agree with him. Death is going to be the end of Jesus, and then the bad guys will win. Death is losing. And yet Jesus knows that he's got to die. And so what he does is he, he uses an analogy of a seed, a grain of wheat, to illustrate his mission. So what does a seed do? Do you just look at a seed and say, at all costs, we have to protect the seed? Because otherwise we might lose the seed. Can't lose the seed. Like, no. No, no, no. Its glory is when it dies. Its glory is when it's planted and then it dies. And then what comes up? You look for what comes after. And that's when there's this, uh, great, uh, this great fruit. You know, so people might automatically think, well, you know, death is losing. And Jesus says, not everything's like that. Take a seed. You plant a seed and it's, you know, it's, it's the death of the seed. But what flourishes, look for what comes after. That's why we plant a seed, right? You look for what comes after and life crops up and then you've got, it bears much fruit. But it has to die first. And Jesus is saying, my ministry is like that. It's not going to be the end when I die. There's going to be, uh, so what's the vindication of the seed? What comes up after? It's like, look for that kind of vindication after I die. You're going to see the vindication of the Son of Man, of me, after I die. So the seed dies and you look for what happens after. When I die, look for what happens after. And then you'll see. He knows this. He knows he's going to die, but that's not going to be losing it's going to be the way through for the whole world. So Jesus' ministry, his life, is he uses this very simple analogy. It's easy to illustrate his point. A seed has to die to, to do its thing, to, to produce fruit. And the reason I'm here, I'm going to die. What's going to come out of that? It's going to be a lot of life, a lot of abundance. So you're going to see death and burial, but you're going to see great fruit uh, blooming up. Look for this. But that's not where he ends. You know, there, up to this point, he's totally talking about his glorification and the way it impacts him, Jesus says. It's time now, and uh, that's not the end. You're going to see great, just like a seed, you're going to see something return out of this that's going to be great. It's going to bear much fruit. He ends with this in verses 25 and 26, and he, he says, what you see in me is the pattern of, uh, for my followers. Uh, my glorification is a pattern for you. Well, so what does Jesus go through? He's going to go through trouble and then vindication, to say it simply. Trouble, vindication. You might be like, well, that's, that's kind of a tough, you know, a tough draw. I'd rather just get vindication without the trouble. And Jesus goes, no, no, no. Vindi you, know, you get vindication, but you get the trouble too. Uh, look at verse 25. You see this? Whoever loves his life loses it. Now, it, you're almost not human if this doesn't get you. Like, who doesn't love himself or herself a little bit? You know? I mean, you sort of, like, have you grown fond of yourself? You might get frustrated with yourself. Um, but, you know, if there's somebody's neck you want to save, you're probably on the short list. Right? So whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world, very important, will keep it for eternal life. He's doing this contrast. Now, 
Scholars are right to do this. They, they say in their setting, uh, love and hate's idiomatic. Like it's not absolute, it's not quantitative like that. You're doing this to create a contrast. What you love, uh, you're rejecting uh, in, in, you know, in terms of the opposite, in the contrast of what you hate. You're rejecting this because you love this. This is more important. You value it more. And he's talking about your life. What's the contrast? So it's less literal and more convictional. And here's the formula. Hey, do you love your life? Everything revolves around this. You have to keep it. You'll do everything you can to protect it. Well, if you do that, if your life is your everything, you lose it. But if you hate your life in this world, now how do you do that? You have to realize that this world isn't everything. But once you come to grips with that, then you're in the spot that you can keep it. Now, an aspect of this is that the world, here's another picture for you, but this is not Jesus, this is mine. Uh, the world's like a sinking ship. And you can't do these two things at once. You cannot cling to the ship that is sinking and then stand safely on the shore. can't do that at the same time. You have to, if, if the ship you're on is sinking... Even if you go, well, I, I just don't like that paradigm. It doesn't matter. The water is going to get you either way, if it's true, right? Um, what he's saying here is that the life that endures is only with God and that this world is passing. And if all your hopes, if you, if you love your life in this world, uh, your, your hopes live and die with it. And as it passes, so does your security. So does your life. Or you can enter the kingdom of God, but that's in juxtaposition with this world. The world passes, the kingdom of God endures, but those two are opposed. You can't cling to a world that is passing and find eternal life. If you're a longtime churchgoer, that's the one thing maybe that you need to hear most this morning, is that you can't cling to this world with, its, with its, the way it's fading, the way it's passing, its emptiness at the end, its futility and flourish with eternal life. Well, he goes on in verse 26 to talk about those who serve him. He says, uh, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, right? You're going like, to go where Jesus goes. And so he's, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. And he says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. All right, so we've talked about the trouble. Like, you're going to have trouble with this world if you belong to Jesus, right? You'll lose your life in this world. But you can keep it for eternal life. Well, what does that mean? Well, he starts off by saying, like, listen, to serve Jesus. And we've said that what Jesus goes through in his glorification is something of a pattern for his followers. If you follow Jesus, what Jesus goes through is something of a pattern for you. This kind of laying down your life for something greater. And here's the pattern. To serve Jesus is to follow him at the beginning of verse 26. It's to be where he is, and that often means trouble in the world. Exhibit A, the cross. Okay, to go where Jesus goes is to find trouble with the world. But he doesn't end there. He says at the end of verse 26, to serve him is to be vindicated by the Father. Okay, so to, to, to serve Jesus is to be opposed by the world, to hear its verdict over your life that you're condemned and rejected, but to serve Jesus is to be vindicated by the Father. He says, whoever serves me, my Father will honor him. So what, what God effectively does is he overrules the world's verdict on your life. The world opposes you, condemns you, rejects you because you're with Jesus. And the Father vindicates you 
and overrules that lower corrupt court. The Father will honor you. All right? So you see it in scope. This in review, in the passage that we did last week, Jesus makes his triumphal entry, uh, declaring himself through his action to be the Messiah King that Zechariah prophesied about. And then part of this, you know, you've got these different groups of people. They have some kind of take on Jesus' entry into the city. And then this fourth group is introduced in this passage, the Greeks. They're outside of the Jewish ethnicity, and, and really they began at least outside the Jewish religion, outside of Judaism. And they want an audience with Jesus. And when they ask, Jesus says, now. The hour has come for me to be glorified now. Like a seed that dies and then flourishes, that's the way it's going to be. And by the way, he says to his followers, that sets a pattern for you. So Jesus gives his follower, somebody who believes in him, a lot to think about here. And I want to help you do that. I want to, I want to close this morning with three questions I want you to ask yourself. Just out of this passage, okay? Three questions to ask yourself based on what Jesus has said. Number one, is the victory of Jesus my security? Or is something else your security? You, know, you think about what Jesus, uh, my hour has come, I've got to die, and then there's going to bear much uh, fruit out of that. And whoever follows me, whoever serves me, is going to be honored by my Father. What's your security? Is it what Jesus has done and your faith in God? Or is it something else? What is it that keeps you? Is it what Jesus has done? Or is it something less than that? Something sinking. Something passing. What's your security? What makes you you? What makes you okay regardless of what's going on in the world? Is the victory of Jesus my security? Second question. Do I place, oh, this is a blunt question. Do I place myself at the center of the universe? There are probably more nuanced ways to get that uh, question out there, but we just, we took the shortcut, okay? Do you put yourself at the center of the universe? Now, if you're offended that I would even raise that as a possibility, my guess is that you don't know yourself very well. We all have that propensity, right? To put ourselves like we think, we think, you know, right? Like me, and then we work our way out. Another way of asking that same question is, are you too big of a deal to you? Right? Like, I'm just, I'm obsessed with thinking about me all the time. Remember, Jesus talked about loving your life. And loving it in such a way that is so counterproductive that you lose it. Um, if you're at the center, that means that what you're telling the universe, including God, is that you're most important. I have to be protected at all cost. My will be done, not thy will be done. It's me, right? If that's what you have to do to be okay, you have to, at some point you have to come to grips with this reality. You can't save yourself. You're going to need to place yourself in the Father's hands. Whoever serves me, Jesus says, my Father will honor him. That somebody with authority has a, has a verdict to declare over your life, but you're not that person. You're going to have to entrust yourself to somebody else. Uh, it's not true, by the way, that you're the center of the universe. It won't work, so don't do it. Are you at the center of the universe? Do you place yourself there? And here's the third one. It's a big question. So is the victory of Jesus my security? Do I place myself at the center of the universe? And then number three, does my trouble make me better? We're, we're Americans. We tend to think about how to avoid trouble. Fine. 
We should. It's kind of dumb to seek out trouble. Don't do it. But trouble is going to eventually find you, especially if you're linked with Jesus. You're going to be opposed to the world at different uh, times. Or, or, or is your response to your trouble to go to the middle of this sinking ship and cling to whatever it has to offer you? The world and what it can give you? You know, when Jesus talks about the pattern of his ministry, it's like a seed. It's got to die. He talks about whoever follows me uh, I, I will be where I am. I'm going to be, uh, you're going to be, uh, my follower is going to be where I am, but that's going to draw the trouble from the world. Jesus is very clear about clinging to the world. You might as well grab a shadow. You might as well grab vapor because you won't, hang, you won't be able to hold on to it. It's passing and trouble is coming to you. So question, does your trouble make you better? Is your trouble making you better or bitter? Have you ever heard that? Uh, is your trouble operating to sanctify you or is it shrinking you? Is it making you less of a person, uh, the trouble you have? Is it making it clearer to you that the world can't be your hope or is it making you just double down on whatever little vanishing thing left that the world has to offer you that you can't keep anyway? What is it that your trouble, what are you getting out of your trouble? Because you're going to have trouble. What are you getting out of it? Are you better for it? Are you learning? Are you growing? Are you turning more and more to Jesus? Is it making you better? If you remember, if you were here early, I, I said at the, at the outset of John, my prayer as we go through the gospel of John is that as we encounter the book, you'll encounter the person. And the reason is because Jesus is so great. We've also talked about how you divide up the Gospel of John, and we've said, hey, it's the public ministry and the passion ministry of Jesus. You could look at it like this if you want to apply those divisions. You could say, hey, in his public ministry, what we've seen are these signs and miracles and power and all of that. We can see all of the ability that Jesus has. He has the power to do something for me. But now that we're in the second half, the last half of this book, and it slows down to the last half of his life or the, the last week of his life, he's suffering for you. So you get to see in the first part of the Gospel of John that he has the ability to change everything for you. And what you get to see in the second half of the Gospel of John is he's willing to do it. He's willing to pay the ultimate price to draw you in, to bring you into the kingdom of God. So we can talk about it and go, well, you know, the reality seems harsh. Yes, and God has answered it through Jesus. So the theme, the echo in, in the Gospel of John over and over again is to believe in his Son. Believe in his son and have eternal life. And as you look at it, you just see a man riding into his death and you realize, ah, this is the one sent by God to lay down his life to include not just a little group of people, but the whole world. Anybody who would believe, anybody who would come to him. And so what we do is we just extend, let me do that this morning, the invitation of John to you to believe in the only son of God and to do that for his glory and for eternal life. He's that good. Let's pray. God, so gracious, so loving that you loved the world. All different kinds of people, old and young and rich and poor and you know, all different colors of skin and different backgrounds and all of that stuff. Loved us so much in spite of our sin, in spite of our estrangement from you, that you sent Jesus to, to do what we could never do, live a, a righteous, perfect life in obedience to you. He laid that down to, to be a, a sacrifice in our place. 
so that he would get the condemnation for our sin, we get the, the righteousness that he accomplished, and you vindicated him. It's like a seed that, that dies. He didn't stay there. He rose from the grave and is now seated with you at, the, at your right hand, and we get to share that victory with him. So I, I just pray for every believer in the room as we think about our Savior, our Lord, that we grow in confidence. We know who we are. We know what Jesus has accomplished for us. And I pray for everybody who's just sort of seeking. As in, sir, we wish to see Jesus, that by your spirit, they would see. And the light would come on, and you would bring them into your kingdom uh, through the merit of Jesus, and that they would know you because of what Jesus has done. Would you do that for your glory, for our joy, for our good? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.